Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Listen, guys, I got something special just for my listeners. If you follow me, you know I usually don't hawk products. I stick to the issues important to you and me. But I think I can't keep this to myself. You may want to check. I usually don't call the products. I stick to else jumps on the bandwagon. Now, this is just for you, my listeners. I joined up with Team Earth Water. Earth Water is a company that is faith-based and patriotic. Earth Water is an amazing water. It will soon be the rage of the nation and is going worldwide. It has over 70 antioxidants and minerals. It's good, trust me. I already sleep better. I dropped one of my prescriptions, and I'm possibly looking to maybe drop another one soon. So ask yourself, do you want to make a few extra bucks on the side while getting healthier? Who doesn't? So if so, check out the Earth Water link on my homepage at Southern Sense. That's the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Good afternoon. You're here listening live to Southern Sense on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all the heck with it. You know what I'll say next. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, Southern Hyphen Sense. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my courageous <laughs> and intellectual co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Wow. Good afternoon, Curtis. Oh, man, we've hey, got so I've much been, to do today, so much to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I've been watching oh, this, this circus. Oh, ah. am I on? Yeah, I've been watching this circus on television called the Senate Confirmation Hearing. I guess they didn't get the memo <laughs> that we don't have circuses in the United States anymore. They, closed, they shut them all down. Harry, 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 step right <laughs> to the greatest show yeah, on earth. Arnold, <laughs> and Arnold, Bell, and the hearing of Judge Kavanaugh. <laughs> oh yeah. man, I was watching it. I just, I, I, I'm sorry. I just, I, I don't know how I could keep my cookies down. My husband's out there right now watching it, and he said the same thing. What a joke the whole thing is. Uh, but we'll be talking with it. We've got two great guests. We've got L. Todd Wood. Uh, he's joining back. I don't know why I haven't had him on uh, more often. He's a great friend of the show. Um, we're going to be talking with him. And then on the second half, we've got Gregory Wrightstone. And he'll be talking about climate uh, hoax as well as the ruling that came down uh, from court 
going in favor of the conservative groups that were being attacked by the IRS. And that's a huge win for us. But uh, that said, I want to welcome everyone that's listening in the studio. Special shout out to our friend Sweet Sue, who's joining us today, as well as Cool Mike in the uh, studio. And we've got Robert over in the chat. We've got it up on YouTube and Facebook. So feel free to watch us, listen to us, or whatever. Just uh, don't throw the jelly donut at the (laughs) computer. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, That said, everyone knows we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Army Sergeant First Class Mihail Golan, killed in action on January 1st of 2018 while serving during Operation Freedom Sentinel in Nagar province, Afghanistan. And the reason why this is a little special to me is uh, this soldier, this Special Forces soldier, it was an immigrant from my husband's family's native country of Latvia. So today's dedication is going out to Sergeant First Class Mihail Golan. And this is from the Fallen Military Times. And it reads... Army Sergeant First Cast Mihail Golan died January 1st, 2018, serving during Operation Freedom Sentinel. He was 34 of Fort Lee, New Jersey, and he was killed after being engaged by enemy small arms fire while on a dismounted patrol. Golan was assigned to the 2nd Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group Airborne from Fort Carson, Colorado. Sergeant First Class Mihail Golan died of his injuries following a small arms engagement during a dismounted patrol, the release said. Four other soldiers were wounded during the fight. We are deeply saddened by the loss of one of our own U.S. Forces Afghanistan Commander John Nicholson said, in a, At this very difficult time, our heartfelt sympathies go out to the families and friends of our fallen and wounded brothers. Golan, a we- weapons sergeant, was deployed to Nangaha Province with the 2nd Battalion, 10th Special Forces out of Fort Carson, Colorado. He was emigrated from Latvia in 2004, enlisted in the Army in early 2005. He served as an infantryman with the 25th Infantry Division in Alaska before graduating from the Special Forces Qualification Course in 2014. He had previously deployed to Iraq, and twice to Afghanistan, according to a release from the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. His awards include two Purple Hearts, three Army Accommodation Medals, and three Army Achievement Medals. And this is from the New York Daily News, written by Edgar Sandoval and Nancy Dillon. I can't describe. It's impossible. I'm still proud of him. Heartbroken dad, David Golan, 55, told the Daily News in a darkened hallway of the Sheep's Head Bay apartment building in Brooklyn, New York. It was on New Year's Day that the Uber driver learned his son, Sergeant First Class Mihail Golan, died in a firefight while on a dismounted patrol in Nagar, a largely ISIS-controlled province in eastern Afghanistan. He was only 34 years old, and he was a brave guy. A career in the military was his destiny, Golan said. They don't have any details. They just told me he had been shot in the chest in Afghanistan. He said the dedicated soldier long dreamed of joining the armed forces. 
He signed up a year after arriving in the U.S. from Latvia when he turned 21. The dad said, he said, I want to serve the Army. He served, he signed right up after he came to America. He wanted to be in the Airborne Forces, his dad said somberly. I will always remember him as a good man, proudly. And what he did for this country, he said. This country has taken us. He wanted to serve for this country. He said his son joined the elite team of Green Berets three years ago. I was very proud of him. I guess it was a poor decision. I was wrong, he said, revealing his dismay over the ongoing loss of American lives in the nearly two-decade conflict in Afghanistan. I don't understand this Afghanistan, some small country. What are we doing over there, he asked. Why are we losing our kids over there? What for? That's the main question. While the U.S. Army formally ended its combat missions in Afghanistan in 2014, it still maintains many resources on the ground and carries out operations against the Taliban and ISIS-affiliated groups. In a statement released, the Pentagon said Sergeant Golan lived in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and was assigned to the 2nd Battalion of the 10th Special Forces Group Airborne, based in Fort Carson, Colorado. Sergeant Golan's mother, Elena, came from Latvia to attend funeral services, the family said. His ex-wife, Katrina, and their six-year-old daughter, Velda, who lived in Colorado, attended the transfer of his remains at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. The elder Golan said he would treasure his memory of his last brief call with his son on December 30th. We spoke right before New Year's. He wished me a happy New Year. He said he was going to be a couple of days of work, and he could not call me. And he said, I love you. To the family of First Sergeant Golan, I will try to say this correctly. Tav Dobbs, Kyuri Karavia. Tadat likes at Putzes Mira. I said in Latvian, stand down, soldier, in peace. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Golan. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve in our military, from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency responders. We dedicate to them this song, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. Protect and 
others gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for, my respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power, but their vicious deeds become my finest on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up in iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker. Oh, just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the most sister radio, Chickeny, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. And, Curtis, we got our first victim on the line. Uh, let me uh, just try it to get like keyboard working here. Okay, and let's bring along our guest and friend of the show, longtime friend of the show, I'm happy to say, L. Todd Wood. Good afternoon, Todd. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, you know you're always welcome. You are so busy, and I tell you, you've got some new project going on. Call me, and we'll get you on, but you don't call me anymore. You don't love me. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very busy these days. Oh, man. Uh, there is so much to talk to you about, but I don't. I want to ask you: Did you catch any of the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing today at all? No, I knew it was going to be a circus, so I just didn't even feel like, uh, you know, tuning in. I, I'll just ignore it and catch the news later, you know. <laughs> get just get the cliff notes on it, you know. Exactly. I commented to my to my co-host Curtis uh, just before coming on the air. And I says, you know, it's no wonder that the symbol of the democratic party is what it is. A jackass. That makes <laughs> a lot know? of sense. Doesn't it? Oh man. It does. But uh, it is, it does. It's just absolutely unbelievable what they're doing over there. And Kavanaugh will be confirmed, but 
I, I, I was watching it, and they had some disruptions from people inside, not the gallery, but inside on the floor there, interns that were there. And I'm saying, why didn't they just shut them down immediately? But the Capitol Police inside there were just letting them go on and on. And finally, after about an hour or so, they started to remove them. But it is, it's, really? I've it's never seen anything like I've seen this. The Trump derangement syndrome is in full mode. Yeah, no, it took an hour. That's crazy. I mean, that, that's, uh, I'm glad I didn't watch it then because I would have just been angry. <laughs> <laughs> You would have been locked and loaded, aiming at your, your TV screen. Exactly. <laughs> no, yeah. they, those things cost a little bit of money. Aim it at the Democrats' computer screen. <laughs> Annie, Man. I, actually, now, actually, actually, I, I think it was good that we got to see how unhinged these folks are. I thought it was great that they let it last as long as it did. I knew eventually they had to, you know, um, regain order, but it was just good for America to see how unhinged these folks are. That's a good well, point. Well, that, that is sure. a point. Yeah, because, you know, Todd, they have this now, this walk-away movement, where Democrats are actually, you know, saying, I thought I was a liberal. I actually thought I was a progressive. But watching these people, they're not the same as I am, and they're walking away from the Democratic Party. So maybe it is good that it's there for everyone to see how how deranged they really are. Well, I think a lot of the uh, people on the left that have been, you know, walking away, as you say, are doing it because they see that exactly is that the censorship, the the violence, the shutting down of opposite opinions is, is just doesn't sit well with some people. So, you know, we don't have to get a lot of them, just enough to get over the edge in November in 2020. So, I, you know, 5% will do. So that it's not going to take a lot to get that amount. No, it won't. You know, the funny part is, is that I was posting up on Twitter earlier, getting the show out, and someone had posted a mime, uh, and it had on one half Colin Kaepernick, on the other half it had Pat Tillman, and I don't know if anyone realizes, but uh, Nike has been sponsoring Colin Kaepernick. They've been doing it quietly on the QT, uh, and now it's the 30th anniversary of Nike or something like that, so they made it public today that they're sponsoring Colin Kaepernick, and the internet, the social networks have been going nuts over that. And Nike stock actually took a dive because of their sponsorship of Colin Kaepernick. That's how much people were pissed off. It's bad enough that they're boycotting the NFL, which I'm part of. Uh, now Nike, which is the major sponsor of the NFL, is being boycotted. And I saw the mime, and I, I said, this is a perfect example. You know, one will stand up for the nation. And I had I went and reposted it, and I said, what is the difference between these two men? One will stand up and die for this nation. The other one will kneel and see it die. And within a matter of minutes, Twitter took the mime down. It wasn't even more than five minutes, and that mime was down. Isn't wow. that amazing? That is amazing. You know, there's something else to that, is that the uh, former president of Iran, uh, Ahmadinejad, actually endorsed Kaepernick on the same day as Nike. So there's a good, uh, you know, the murderous regime head uh, that's killed tens of thousands of political prisoners. Uh, so, you know, that gives you a, a, good, a good, something else to put out on Twitter, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. And it's funny because as soon as I saw Nike was endorsing, I ran to the bedroom. I looked at my sneakers. I looked at my husband's sneakers and we do not own any Nike sneakers. And I pulled out the, 
uh, Dolphins football jersey that my husband has, and it has Reebok on it. It doesn't have Nike on it. And uh, John of uh, was it Big and John, Big and Little, whatever that that country group, the two guys, uh, went out on stage and not on stage. He went up on Twitter and said boycott Nike, uh, support Reebok. <laughs> so I love it. So it's backfiring big time on them. Uh, but we got so much more to talk about. What is the latest going on? Because last I spoke with you, currency was being made into a movie. You're, you were negotiating to have that done. What's going on with that? Well, that's a longer-term project. Um, we actually, I, I wrote a, uh, I don't know when we talked last, but I wrote a book on the Korean War, and we're kind of pushing that one first just because we think it's an easier uh, one to get made. But every time we talk to studios, there's interest, but then they get bought by the Chinese. So it's a, it's a long-term project. We do have a, uh, a documentary that's being produced in London right now on uh, Princess Anastasia from the Romanovs, from the Russian dynasty that was murdered in uh, 1917. So that's happening in London. Uh, so that's my main movie project at the moment. Uh, but the other ones are, uh, it's been a challenge, to be honest, because uh, we may have to make it independently because uh, the Chinese don't want to make a movie about, uh, you know, American soldiers killing Chinese in North Korea. So it's, it's a problem. You know, um, I, I just have someone that uh, did a project on the Korean War, and maybe I'll put her in touch with you uh, that maybe the two of you can collaborate because she d- did one about a forgotten soldier. Uh, there was this one soldier in Korea. Their unit was used to film a Korean War movie, and Hollywood hmm. thought this guy was so great that they tried to recruit him three times because they had him all set up to be the next Clark Gable. And the guy refused. And on the final day of the shooting, they said, all right, we'll get even with him. We'll make it so that when he comes back to the United States, he'll never work in Hollywood. So they kill him off in the movie. And that was the final day of shooting while he was there on the scene. So he dies on that final day of shooting. That afternoon, while all of his buddies were at the hotel having cigars and whiskey and whatever, he picked up his gear and went back to his unit. That afternoon, he died. Documentary movie on that. So maybe I'll put her together with you, and maybe you can get something working together. Sure. Sounds good. Always always willing to talk to people, for sure. Mm. Now, there is so much more that is going on in the world, but uh, Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing has got all the news stations going ape. Um What hasn't been reported widely is that Trump is stopping aid to the Palestinian U.N. relief refugee program. And I found that like in page three or four of my local rag. I didn't see it anywhere in any of the news. What's what's the story behind all this? Well, that's a good layup because um, one of the things I've realized is that the mainstream media has, has lost so much credibility that there's a lot of business to be taken for them. So several years ago, we started building an effort to, uh, I guess, especially with international news, um, which a lot of it is filtered and a lot of it you don't even hear, like what you're talking about. So we started a new media company. Uh, the first site, it's going to be multiple different sites for different regions of the world, but the first one that's up right now is on Russia, the Middle East, and the Balkans, uh, and Eastern Europe. And it's called Tsarism, T-S-A-R-I-Z-M.com. And the site is growing rapidly, but that's a story we've been following along with the Iranian resistance, which is growing rapidly, which you don't hear in the mainstream media. There's a lot happening, and we're just trying to get stories out 
to the conservative and just American public of what's really happening in the world because you're not getting it on CNN. You're not getting it anywhere else. Um, so we think there's a lot of business to be had there. Well, I didn't have enough room on the show description to put all of your websites on there, so I just put your main one, yeah. ltodwood.com. Mm-hmm. So right. people can go to zarism.com through your main webpage. I figured I'd do a that's catch-all right. for that one. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, but when, when we're but looking right. at it's... the Middle East... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I'm, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say the Palestinian story is one that uh, has been long overdue to... Uh, you know, the U.N. was basically propping them up to continue the conflict, not really to have peace. And they're not refugees. They're, they're in their own country, so they're technically not refugees, which the U.N. was calling them that. So Trump ended all that. He ended the money, which was going to families of martyred uh, people that, you know, blew themselves up in suicide deaths to kill Jews. So, you know, it's, it's just another uh, really good thing that the Trump administration has done in order to, uh, you know, make our allies great again, which includes Israel. So it's uh, in our relationship with them, which Obama damaged heavily. But you're right. That's a story that's not being told. No, it is. Uh, and also I caught, yeah. I caught, uh, let me just follow with the one th- uh, thought further. Mm-hmm. I caught also very briefly mentioning that there is now a Jordan-Palestinian confederation, which is was an idea of Israel. Again, Palestine now linking up with Jordan, but why would Israel want something like that done? I don't know if that was an Israeli push or the Trump administration push. Um, you know, originally, Palestine, or technically, you know, the Jews have been there for 5,000 years, and, and the Palestinians really only since then, <laughs> the 1940s, I guess, uh, when Arabs went back to the area in order to get jobs because the Jews were there building businesses again. So, it, you know, it's really not a, uh, uh, they're not really an ethnic group. They're, they're just people who, uh, you know, are being propped up by the UN, et cetera, to promote a myth. So, um, but they were part of Jordan originally before the Israeli settlement in 1947, 48, or whenever when it happened uh, with the United Nations when the return started of the you know the Jewish population to to that part of the uh, Middle East. So you know it, it does make sense in certain ways for them to be uh, at least you know associated with Jordan in order to because they're an ally, they're a moderate uh, you know Arab state. They have a peace treaty with Israel, so um, you know maybe not two states, but part of Jordan and Israel, or some type of you know autonomous territory as they are now. So um, I, I think there are, the Trump administration is on the right track there. All right, go ahead, Curtis. All right. Yeah, since we're speaking of the Middle East, and I know this event is an old event, but um, do you believe the official version? Oh, what happened to Extortion 17? Uh, the uh, helicopter flight, right? That's right. About 36 um, special ops. Yeah. I think about 26 were um, yeah. still Team 6. Yeah, you know, I, it's, uh, I used to fly those guys around myself back in my previous life as an Air Force helicopter pilot, so I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of those guys, and uh, what they do, and uh, but uh, you know the story seems fishy. To be honest, I don't know, um, and I've never really looked into it. It's just something that's kind of been out there. But 
I agree with you. There's some, uh, it doesn't make sense uh, for that aircraft. It was probably targeted from an inside job, most likely, is, is what, you know, I think. Now, we did a show on Extortion 17, uh, and a lot of that, just, just none of that made sense. And you were a heli- mm-hmm. you are a helicopter pilot. You shouldn't say were. You still are. You don't stop being one all of a sudden. Uh, but sometimes you wonder, uh, was that payback for bin Laden? Were they sacrificed? Oh, of course. You know, I mean, of course. As I mean, a- the Afghan, there's a lot of... You know, I think a soldier was killed this week uh, by an inside attack, right, uh, in Afghanistan, where an Afghani soldier was supposedly our ally shot two of them. One of them was injured, one died. Yeah. I mean, that's just, yes, just hard. I mean, you know, so that happens all the time, and this was probably just something very similar. Yeah, because we started mm-hmm. off the show with the dedication to uh, Army Sergeant First Class Mihail Golan, uh, and um, mm-hmm. they believe that it was an inside uh, job that, he was shot in the chest because, you know, these guys do wear vests and stuff. So in order to hit a special operations guy in the chest, you've got to be awfully close to them and to be able to get into that one area where the body armor would not cover. So it, it just, yeah. again, it all becomes very suspicious. And the most amazing thing about this soldier, you know, my husband's family is from Latvia. And uh, uh-huh. they, they were actually displaced uh, after World War II. Uh, they had to flee because Russia took over Latvia. First they fled from the Nazis and then they fled from the Russians. And they came here to the United States and they were great, very proud to be here. And this one soldier, a year after he emigrated, became an army soldier. As soon as he turned 21, he joined the army and he said, this country has welcomed me, now I will pay them back. And he, he paid the ultimate price for it. And that's what it should be, what immigration should be. That is what it should be. But instead, you know, you have people with the handout, you know, demanding free housing, free food, free this, free education, free medical care. And this one person said, no, this is I'm going to pay back America. I don't want America to pay me. The difference in the mindset is 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 what America should be about. No, you're exactly right. You know, I read a quote by the Italian uh, new prime minister who's a anti-illegal immigration uh, hawk who's teaming up with uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary and and uh, what Steve Bannon's doing in Europe. And his comment was, you know, they claim asylum, but then they complain about what hotel they're put into. So obviously they're not refugees from a political violence sense. They're economic migrants. They just want, you know, more stuff. And if they can go to Europe and get it for free, then fantastic. So uh, that's a problem that's global that we have to deal with. Now, I wanted to bring you back to the Middle East because you you are a Russian expert, actually. You spend part of your time there in Moscow and part of your time here. And you're looking at what Putin is doing over there uh, in the Middle East. He's trying to reassert Russian influence in the Middle East because Obama basically pulled us out of just about everything. Will he succeed or will Israel and the United States uh, Trump administration put a stop to this? Because he's pulling some really risky stuff in Syria. Well, there are several issues there. One is he's already reasserted Russian influence in the Middle East. I mean, he's, uh, uh, you know, the man to talk to. uh, Bibi Netanyahu has been to Moscow, I think, nine times in the last two years uh, to discuss with Putin what's going on there. So, you know, the Assad regime has been 
uh, stabilized by Russia. They, Russia has multiple bases uh, near Latakia and in Tartus, a naval base. And, you know, they're there to stay. It's costing them a lot of money. It's expensive, but they think it's worth it just because of, from a, a power projection standpoint. The issue really is Iran. So if Russia can help us push Iran out of Syria, because what Iran's trying to do is make a land bridge from Tehran to Iraq with Ara- Iranian militias uh, in Syria, where they have militias as well as Hezbollah and other uh, Iranian-backed armies, so they would have a land bridge from the Mediterranean all the way to Tehran. I mean, that's something that we cannot allow uh, for Israel's security and for our own um, you know, security because you can have things like Afghanistan happen again there where they build terrorist camps, et cetera. They're the world's largest uh, sponsor of terrorism. So it's not really Putin that I'm worried about in the Middle East. I mean, they're in Syria. They're going to stay there. It's a long-term Soviet, uh, uh, you know, back to the Soviet days uh, base of operations. Um, I don't think it, it, caused, it, it harms American national security, but Iran really does. So that's the real threat. And I think Trump has decided to stop it across the board. Well, Russia has been putting a, a more and more influence in the area. Now, it, would this be good for us, you know, allowing us to then concentrate our attention elsewhere in the world rather than worrying constantly about the Middle East? Do you think Trump, uh, would allow Putin to do that to tamp down on terrorism? Well, you know, there are areas, I mean, my, my thoughts with Russia is we have to confront them where they are against our national interests, whether that be in Eastern Europe uh, with our NATO allies uh, uh, or other areas. Um, we have to confront them where we need to, and we should try to work with them where we can. And one area where we can is uh, working against the Islamic State in the Middle East. So, uh, you know, they're not a, real, a reliable ally, but in some ways uh, they can help us. So I think Trump's trying to thread that needle. Um, you know, they don't have a lot of money. They they do have a lot of nuclear weapons, but that's about it. They, they're not going to be able to take over the Middle East. They just don't have the assets. Their economy is shrinking. Um, and, you know, China and Iran and, and North Korea, in my opinion, are the real threats. I mean, again, don't, t- don't get me wrong. I think that Russia has to be confronted. Like... Uh, you know, a real red line needs to be NATO borders like the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, um, and, and other areas like that. Uh, and we have to stop them in their cyber activities, which, you know, that's a whole other issue. Why Obama administration allowed all the cyber theft to go on for a decade is beyond me. Well, I think I know the reason, but, um, you know, I don't think Russia is threatening the existence of the United States where Iran is. So that's, in my opinion, the real thing we have to watch out for. Yeah, you mentioned the cyber threat, and it just came to mm-hmm. light just this past week uh, about Hillary Clinton. The Chinese had real-time access to her laptop. <laughs> I mean, it, it, and nothing yeah, is being done with this woman. <laughs> when will the, the yeah, Clinton it's, menagerie it's, stop? Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, you know, something's going on behind the scenes. We just have to let it. I think eventually it will come out, but, um, man, it sure is frustrating. I agree with you. Yeah. But, you know, as I was thinking about Russian, Russia and Putin dealing with terrorism, because he's got the stance where their terrorism does come out of there, yet he uses Chechen Muslim troops in his invasion of, I believe it was Georgia, so on one hand, he uses Muslim troops, and yet on the other hand, he battles terrorism. And I, 
I don't understand the dichotomy. Well, you have to realize Russia is 30% uh, Muslim. So, you know, they, uh, you're right, the central, South Central Asia and the Caucasus is a hotbed of extremism. A lot of ISIS fighters went to Syria from there, the Chechen uh, area, Dagestan and others. And so it's been a problem for Putin. They, they fought two wars there, the Chechen wars. He put in a strongman, uh, so-called moderate Muslim, Kadyrov, into Chechnya. And, you know, he uses those fighters as kind of like a uh, mercenary force. So in Syria, you know, for Kadyrov to get more money, he says, okay, I'll send my fighters there. So it's, it's more of a convenient thing than any kind of, uh, you know, I guess, re- referendum on Islam or anything. It's more fighters he can use where he, you know, whether it be Ukraine or, you're right, in Syria, um, but they are fighting extremism in the area, and Kaduro is helping with that too. So it's a complicated issue for sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny. This, <clears throat> go ahead, Curtis. Check up with something with that board posted in the chat room. I want him to give me more information. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Curtis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, as you know, and I don't know how much you know about this country, but Turkey is supposed to be an ally and it's supposed mm-hmm. to be a member of NATO. But more recently, um, past few years, they have been acting anything but like an ally. Do you think mm-hmm. it was perhaps a mistake allowing those guys to join NATO? Well, at the time, probably not, but now it sure looks like it. I mean, at the time, Turkey was a secular country. They wanted to be part of the EU. That was, you know, 50 years ago. The problem is that, um, you know, Erdogan has become an Islamist dictator. So there was a guy named Ataturk in Turkey before that who kept, you know, a secular country that wanted to be part of the rule of law, part of, you know, a free society. And the the military kind of backed up that doctrine, if you will, for decades. But uh, Erdogan was able to overcome that. And uh, he's very weak. He's very weak right now, though. You know, I think if we can get some kind of I mean, it's it's a problem for sure, uh, and I think that that we cannot count on them as a NATO ally for sure at this point. But hopefully, we can get some kind of change in leadership there. I don't know. We'll see what happens, but it's a definite problem. Yeah, I think it'll well, come you know, about it, it, you know change in, in the leadership because, I mean, when I went to Turkey, I think back in the '90s, women had just been allowed to start wearing pants, mm-hmm. you know, and. Trousers and to drive, and I, I mm-hmm. think it'd be difficult to to try to get them to go back to the old ways. Yeah. Well, he's pushing the Sharia law and everything there. So, uh, and he's and the other thing he's doing, he's spreading the Islamic, uh, I guess, more jihadist viewpoint into uh, into the Balkans, into Albania, which is another secular Muslim country. So he's trying to. Uh, gain influence around him, which is a problem. And he's tight with Putin, which is another huge problem. I was going to ask you about that, about the, the circle of power between Russia and Turkey. Um, it, it's On one hand, again, I, I, I'm trying to comprehend the dichotomy with Putin, where at one hand he's fighting terrorists, and yet on the other hand, he's encouraging countries where terrorism is coming from, where the rise of the caliphate is coming from. Uh, it's 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 uh, hard for me as a Westerner to he'll, understand he'll do, that thinking. 
he'll do what he needs to do. Um, they don't have any moral qualms with doing that. Uh, they never have. They never will. Russia's a different society. So, uh, uh, you know, if he needs to use somebody, if he needs to, what he's trying to do is split up NATO. Um, and he's doing a good job of it with Turkey. So, uh, you know, he sees opportunities. So he's, he's trying to pull. I mean, Turkey is basically the southern flank of NATO. So, you know, that's, it's a big coup for him to pull them over to his side for sure. Well, for the longest time, Turkey was not allowed to go into NATO. And it was only during the, I believe it was the Obama administration that they finally entered it. Am I right or wrong on that one? I, I, I no, can't remember the time before, frame. It was, it was before that. Oh, it was under Bush <clears> then. Okay. Um, and they fought and they, they lobbied really hard and said, look, we're a moderate Muslim country. We're mostly secular. We're not you know, Sharia compliant. They get into NATO, and no sooner do they get into NATO, Eridine comes into power. And then everything they said that they were going to do is the exact opposite now. So why aren't they being kicked out of NATO then? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know what the Trump policy is. I think they're trying to figure out what to do, to be honest. It's, it's a problem. But I think mm-hmm. Turkey joined NATO yeah. in, like 19, in the 50s or 60s. I don't know. It wasn't recently. It's been a while. I'm, I'm trying to remember, what am I mixing it up with? That I must be confusing myself with something else? Or was it the EU? Oh, yeah, they were trying to get into the EU. All right, I'm mixing yeah, myself that's up. Right. They're not even so it's one of those but, European um, things. <laughs> but um, right now uh, in Russia, uh, Putin has been trying to do some reforms. And one of them, like here in the United States, pensions. Uh, he's trying to reform the pensions because they're running out of money. And like we have with Social Security, we're running out of money. Uh, so he's doing these pension reforms, which has caused a lot of unrest. What is going on there now? Where do they stand? Well, Russians have a much lower life expectancy than we do. So it's caused a lot of problems because people feel like they're going to have to work until they die. Uh, and, they feel, and they see it as a big theft by a corrupt government to take money that they can use to send to their offshore bank accounts or to fight wars in Syria or wherever. So the people are very angry and it's the first thing that's really threatened Putin in a long time. I mean, I I saw, I wrote about a poll yesterday, I believe that over 50% of the Russian population is willing to protest against this. So it's, you know, there, it is just coming into the same levels as developed countries. I think it's 63 for women, 65 for men that he's moving it up to. Um, I think they softened that a few years recently, but it, it has caused, you know, if, if your life expectancy is only 65, <laughs> you know, then, then it's uh, to work to 65, just there's no retirement. So that's the problem. They see the theft. Um, but from a fiscal standpoint, they probably do from a demographic standpoint, they don't have the money to do it. So the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. They need to raise it, um, but they also need to reform their economy and make it so that they can uh, take better care of their people and, and grow their GDP faster than what they're doing, which is really not growing at all now, maybe just barely inching along, which is a, better than being in a recession, but it's still not a good thing. No, it's not. And under Putin, the, the economy has continued to shrink. Now, as I understand it, this is his final term. Um, what's going well, to happen after his sure. term? No, nobody knows. I mean, he can... He can do another thing, what he did with Medvedev, a few, you know, kind of have two presidents. He could change the Constitution. He could, 
who knows what he wants to do? That's the big question. I don't think anybody knows what he's going to do. Yeah, because I remember with Medvedev, um, they swapped for a little time, yeah. and then he said, well, now we'll swap back again. So you think maybe yeah. he'll try that again? Because he's still he a relatively young man. Yeah, no, he could. Um, you know, the problem with Russian leaders is that they always worry about if they leave office and they get uh, prosecuted or, you know, for corruption and stuff like that. So, which obviously Putin squirreled away a lot of money. And that, that's one reason Yeltsin picked Putin, because he thought he wouldn't go after his family and for, for all the money they stole. So that's, it's kind of a catch-22. You can't really leave, you know. <laughs> Or you go to jail or get killed or something like that. So it's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> he'll be ruler of Russia for life. Um, right now, uh, there's more and more information coming out under the Mueller investigation. And as you start to delve into all the stuff that's going on with the Clintons, the Fusion GPS, it's ties back to Uranium One. It's ties to... Um, uh, technology that under the Clinton administration that was sent to uh, China, thus going into North Korea and Iran. It, it, the web that is being weaved in this story, will we ever see the end of it or will the whole thing ever be revealed? How much of Russia's influence uh, on the Clinton administration and on the uh, attacks on Trump are going to be? Well, that's another good question. That's why everyone's so angry at Jeff Sessions because you know he's just basically lost control or ceded control of the Justice Department, and obviously none of that's happening. So, I think after the midterms, you're going to see a lot of, uh, I guess, changes go on. I think they're trying to get past the midterms, make sure they can try to hold the House, and then, you know, really go after some of these issues. But uh, I think Sessions will be fired. Who knows else? Who else will be fired? And, you know, hopefully some of this stuff will come out because it needs to, really, because we can't be a democracy without it coming out. So it has to. Yeah, you know, the Soviet Union fell back in 91, and you would think that with the ability to have capitalism now, you would see a rise in the economy. But we've never seen Russia, the economy, ever rise much higher than it currently is. If anything, it's starting to fall. Uh do you ever see where capitalism will ever take a strong foothold in Russia? Or is it just corruption well, that, just prevents it from ever happening? They're, they're an oligarchy. I mean, they, in many ways, are more capitalist than us. I mean, they don't have any welfare. They don't, uh, they, it's very small. They have a 13% flat tax rate. Um, so the problem there, as you say, is corruption. They, they aren't communists anymore. They, they, they abhor that these days. Uh, so but it's really an oligarchy where you have a kleptocracy running all the major industries, so no small industries can develop. So it's that's the problem is the, is the corruption and you know if you build a good business, then somebody will just steal it. So everybody leaves. You know if you, if you build something like the guy who developed the encrypted app Telegram, he left Russia. Um, and that's usually what happens. So. Uh, you know, they'll use the tax authority after you to say you have this big tax problem and just take your business. Um, but that's the real issue there. It's not capitalism versus communism. It's corruption. Now, well, you know, with Putin still in power, I don't see anyone really rising up against him. Anyone that has tried to challenge him at any time has always been attacked, you know, whether it's with uh, 
tax taxation uh, or going after them criminally, uh, tossing them in jail. Uh, you still see, as you said, the communist because he was KGB. He is a communist outright. Uh, so what we're seeing well, he's not, now, I, I don't think he's that, um, I don't think he believes in communism. No, none, nobody over there in the leadership. Some of them, the old uh, there, there is a communist party there, but this, Russia is not a communist state. Um, they think that the communists destroyed their whole country, which they basically did. I mean, the Bolsheviks wiped out all the people who knew how to do anything. Russia this year is just surpassing the wheat production that they did 100 years ago because the commies killed all the people who knew how to grow something. I mean, it's just fascinating if you look at the history. I mean, they used to be the feed all of Europe back in the early 20th century. And now they are the leading exporter again of wheat. So it, it set them back a long period. I think Putin, I would say, is more of a, uh, I guess, control freak than a, and, and is very slippery and, and deceitful, but he's not communist. He doesn't believe in that anymore. Todd, don't they have more millionaires than we do? I don't know about that, but they got a lot of money. If you go to Moscow, um, <laughs> a lot of billionaires there. Uh, it's like an adult playground. It's an amazing city, actually. Well, I know Putin's supposed to be one of the richest men in the world, if not the richest. Yeah, that's true. I don't know what you do with all that money, but but you're right. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I'm looking at some of the notes that, that I have here, and I'm I'm trying to figure out where to go next because, you know, there's so much to talk about and we're starting to run down on time with you. Um, but, you know, you have a bunch of new books out. Uh, you mentioned the one about the Korean War, and I mm-hmm. actually downloaded the Kindle of it just the other day and I was starting to read it. Uh, tell us about that book. Yeah, it's called Lost Bastards. Uh, a good gentleman came to me out in California a few years ago and said, you know, would you look at my dad's story and the more I looked at it, the more fascinated I was. I was. Uh, his father was in the army in Germany. He was a corporal. He was an anti-aircraft weapons specialist. And he got volunteered, if you will, with 26 other Americans to be shipped. Well, they trained for three months in certain weapon systems, but then they were shipped to Korea during the, about a month before the end of the war went into what is now the DMZ. And they were testing. They, actually, they were actually sent by the uh, the forerunner to the NSA, which is the Army Security Agency, and and the regular Army didn't know they were there, and they put them in a unit on top of a hill with a Korean uh, company, South Korean, and they were testing battlefield radar for the first time, so where you could map out the battlefield at night and see troop movements and stuff like that. So the problem is then they got overrun by 2,000 Chinese, and so they fought with this, this few Korean guys for two weeks, half the Americans were killed. Uh, this guy's father was given the battlefield commission. Um, and just a fascinating story of how they fought off the Chinese thousands of them with this battlefield radar where they could direct fire and, and it actually worked. And then they, you know, half of them made it out alive. So it's called lost bastards. It's a fascinating book. It's everywhere. You can order it online, audio, ebook, whatever. Um, sign copies on my website at ltidewood.com. But no, it's a, it's a great story. And That's also, the one we're trying to make a movie. <clears throat> yeah, a lot of people don't talk about the Korean War, uh, the the Chosan uh, battle, the the uh, mm-hmm. Chosan uh, Basin, 
and the Chinese that just just trapped the Americans in there and those horrific battles. It, no one really talks about the Korean War. You see the TV show MASH, and that's as far as you go. They, mm-hmm. No one delves into it. And you, as you said, the Chinese have a huge influence in this country. They they own just about every port here, which if, if you were to look at a map and light up every area where China owns something in the United States, you would be absolutely stunned. And here we're worrying about port security, and yet the Chinese run most of the ports. Um, the buildings and the properties that they own throughout the United States, highly influential. And if you remember at one time, I believe they owned, um, was it the Chrysler Building or the Empire State Building? I forget which I one. <laughs> but at one point they did. Uh, that didn't last long because you know the people started protesting outside. And so either they quietly transferred the, the ownership to someone else, but it's an amazing amount of, of the amazing large part of our economy is Chinese investment. Well, yeah, I think they're the main threat. Uh, there's a book out uh, called The Hundred Year Marathon, uh, which I saw on the author on Mark Levin the other night. A fascinating book about how much they have uh, deceitfully um, stolen most of our technology and put their, you know, representatives in place, and they're on a hundred-year plan to become a dominant power. And I think you know the U.S. is finally starting to wake up to that. At least Trump is. Um, so if anybody gets a chance, uh, get that book. It's fascinating. It's called The Hundred Year Marathon. Yeah, what happens is, you know, American companies like GE uh, went over mm-hmm. to China, and what the Chinese said, well, yeah, you can come over, you can open your factory, but what they didn't realize is that you've got to turn over all your proprietary materials to the Chinese. And you say, oh, we're just going to be overseeing, but no, they're actually stealing, outright stealing the technology. They look to see how we're doing it, and then they say, all right, we can do this better, and they, then they make it better and cheaper than the American company it, functioning in China. And they also the American companies go, oh, well, you promised. But no, this is the way we do things in China. Bye-bye. And then they go bust. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's what I'm trying to stop. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm glad she said technology because uh, I've been thinking about this throughout the whole <laughs> show. Um, it's basically elementary, this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. According to the laws of physics, a helicopter is not supposed to fly. Is that statement true? Uh, it, it's a finely tuned <laughs> machine, that is for sure. And, and helicopter pilots are notoriously <laughs> worried about something going wrong. So um, you're right. It's it's a it's a uh, a bunch of uh, forces opposing one another just perfectly. And if anything gets out of whack, then they uh, doesn't fly very well, but you're you're very right about that. Wow. Yeah. So what was it like, Todd, because you, you were out there, you were firing these special forces back and forth. How What was it like? Uh, very intense. It's a young man's game. Um, uh, lots of pressure. Uh, you know, we had to get these guys you know, a thousand miles away, plus or minus five seconds, pointing the right direction, you know, with the this, you know, high above the target site or whatever. I mean, so they could fast rope in or whatever. I mean, it's very 
delicately planned, always traveling, always gone. So, you know, that's what these guys are going through now. It's, it's a stressful, hard, pressure-built business that only a few people can do. And you can't do it for very long because it's definitely a young so, game for sure. So were you a member of the Night Stalkers, the 160th Uh No, actually, well, I worked with those guys a lot. I was uh, with the, the 20th Special Operations Squadron uh, Air Force Unit, which was the first uh, special ops squadron that was put together after the Iranian rescue Desert One fiasco. They took all the Air Force helicopters oh, yeah. to long range, put a lot of weapons yeah. and electronics on them, and kind of made them to do that long range mission in and out. But so we were the long range version of the uh, Night Stalkers. Eventually, they got air refueling, and, and the helicopters I, threw, I flew were uh, put in museums. But uh, we we were the original ones. Wow, wow. It's fascinating uh, information. And you've got several other books up on your website, so people should go to your website, which is ltodwood.com. They can um, check out the new news outlet that you have up there, Zarin. Uh, um, I can't say that now. My teeth are in backwards, Todd. Zarin.com, yes. Zarism.com. Uh, I loved it because I was going through the articles and everything, and there's a lot to talk about. I'm looking forward to seeing the other installments go up for the other areas of the world where are all hot spots. Uh, there's so much more to talk about, and we're running low on time with you. Um, but I want to thank you for joining us, Todd. Anytime. Um, I'm busy, but uh, if we can make it work in the future, we'll come back. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It has been our pleasure. <laughs> All right, take care, guys. Yes. All right. Uh, check out Todd Wood, com. Um, man, I mean, just, there's so much more to talk about, uh, but I'm getting myself a little ahead of myself and uh, starting to think about where the heck I'm, I'm starting now. Holy moly, guys. <laughs> Not often I get myself confused, but uh, it's, it's, lately it hasn't been too, too hard. Uh, but we're waiting for our next guest, Gregory Wrightstone, to call in. And um, we've got a lot to talk about with him. And uh, just looking at to see what we've got. Uh, yeah. Oh, we've got a lot of, looking at some of the postings up in the chat room. Because um, Vorp is saying, let's talk crops. Uh, here in Indiana, they have lots of rain. Fantastic crop yields should be a great harvest. We've got farmers saying the new uh, paper tariffs are harming him. Uh, that's That's interesting because... If you're a conservative, you're you're going to turn around and say, "All right, um, I don't want subsidies," and yet these farmers are screaming for subsidies because they can't sell their crops uh, to Canada. So it's it's there's a tug of war going on right now, and I know there's uh, legislation for tariffs to help the farmers who claim they're being harmed by these tariffs. But yeah. we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the. I'm looking at the chat room. Uh, I was reading something from Vort that Carter was a good leader, that he ordered a hostage rescue, and that the military failed their president. I would have to disagree because I was in. No, he created a mess. Vort was being sarcastic. He's being all right, sarcastic. Because I was there. I was there when that went down. And uh, I would have to say it was because of Carter that the military felt because of, he tried to micromanage that operation. And the helicopter pilots weren't allowed to communicate with each other. Um, 
there there are dozen storms over there. We didn't know it, but when we practice here in the United States in our deserts, there there's can last anywhere from an hour to two hours. And because they weren't able to communicate with each other, the helicopters, the lead helicopter came out of the, the um, sandstorm, but he wasn't able to tell some of the others behind him. So one of them turned around because they had some equipment failure. A few others um, didn't go quite as far. They decided they needed to land. And that's when things went awry. You know, they landed near a road. Um, there was a school bus and a truck that went by. The special ops guys commandeered the um, school bus, I think, but the truck got away. But anyway, it was just, uh, they, they got a name for a cluster, you know. But anyway, it was because of Carter trying to um, micromanage that, that we we didn't, you know, we weren't successful and we lost like eight special ops guys and these guys. I think that was the first time um, the Muslims had a, had a chance to um, parade our guys around in front of the TV, you know, the dead bodies. You know, we all remember it from Somalia, but it started back there at Desert One on the Iranian, the Iranian hostage crisis. Yeah. Well, we got our next guest in on the line, and welcome back to the show. Oh, and he just dropped off. Oh, man. <laughs> Technology. I just had him coming in, and then he just dropped off. Oh, well, we'll hope that he'll call back in in a second. And we were going to have Gregory Wrightstone on. Um, so, yeah, they were they were not completely prepared. And as you said, uh, Carter wouldn't no. allow them to do certain things. And let's try this right. once again. And here we go, Gregory Wrightstone. Good afternoon, Gregory. Welcome back. Hi, Annie. How are you? All right. Hi there. I had to... Uh, I- I had to laugh uh, because I was looking at some of your stuff up there, and you have down uh, that I was, you're always, will always be your first. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. First interview I did. Uh, you always remember your first. So, uh, yeah. No, and I almost didn't make it oh. today. I was at the eye, do- eye doctors. They wanted me to have surgery emergency. And I, we, I, I said, I can't. I'm on with Annie Bellis. And they all went, Annie Bellis, really? So uh, I'm doing it in the morning. <laughs> oh, I hope everything's all right with you. Oh, man. It'll be fun. Anything with the eye. Um, I, I, I freak out. You know, every time I go to the eye doctor, someone, when they do the puff in your eyes, someone has to hold my head against the machine mm. because mm. I will I will jerk. Uh, anyone comes near my eyes for eye drops or anything, I, I freak out. Unless I take a Valium or something like that. Forget about it. You're not coming near me. Yeah, you don't want to do this. So uh, we'll be uh, through it tomorrow. Well, but but we wanted to talk today about. Oh, jeez. I've got so about, much. IRS? I, <laughs> let's start off with the IRS because that's the top of the list. By the way, we want to make sure we put out your website, which is inconvenientfacts.xyz, which is. Inconvenient Facts, the name of your book. So people should go to Inconvenient Facts XYZ and learn what Al the Boer Gore doesn't want you to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Now, yes, it, it, now it's funny. Now, I did not realize that you were a Tea Party founder. Yes. Uh, this is a little secret you kept from me. Uh, well, we can't we, let everything out of the bag at once. But, yeah, I was... 
I have a lot of passions. Before I before my passion for climate change and, and writing of the book, uh, I was a I was a true conservative, um, and we found I was founder and president of the Pennsylvania Coalition for Responsible Government, and the genesis of that was the evening that Barack Obama was elected. My wife and I walked out into our cul-de-sac there, and two of her neighbor ladies were there, and one was dabbing tears away. Just she was so scared for where our country was going to go. She goes, what are we going to do? What are we going to And I said, I don't know, but we're going to do something. And that something turned out to be uh, – what turned out later, we didn't know it was a Tea Party group because we predated the Tea Party, but it was the rise of this group. And we were very effective uh, meeting in Washington, uh, the state capitol here in Pennsylvania of Harrisburg, uh, getting legislation passed. Later was founder of the Pennsylvanians Against Common Core. So, yeah, I was very uh, – hip deep in, in the conservative politics. Uh, and actually I was early, and when I was in college, something else you didn't know, I was a member of the Socialist Workers Party for only a short time. Ooh. Yeah, I was left wing. And uh, I, I, I subscribed to the militant and Mother Jones, and you know I was right there. Um, went to graduate school, and every day we would play a card game called Euchre, and every day at 12.15 the... Ronald Reagan commentary would come on the radio. And every day I'd sit there and go, yeah, I agree with him. And this went on for every day after day. And so Ronald Reagan really grabbed me by the back of the neck and, and pulled me out of the darkness. Uh, uh, and I've, I've been uh, extremely, I don't call myself a Republican, although I am, I call myself a conservative. And, um, uh, I think probably a lot of your listeners are probably sitting there in their home shaking their head right now or if they're driving along going, yeah, that's where I am. And uh, so there was it's, it was a big political transformation. So we were tar- – since we, since we predated the Tea Party, we got the first letters that Lois Lerner and the IRS sent out targeting conservative groups. We were number eight on the IRS hit list. So uh, I we, – we were dumbfounded when we got this letter – uh, just a whole, I don't know how many things they required of us. It was every piece of communication, email, written, spoken, any speeches we gave. Uh, who were our contributors? How much did they give? You know, on a monthly basis. Uh, incredibly intrusive. This is to get our uh, uh, IRS uh, 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 the, the, the C4 designation, tax exempt status, and uh, we got it. And our treasurer immediately resigned because she was a CPA for a big firm. And she says, I can't have anything to do with it. I was in the process of – I was a founding partner of a startup, and we were just at the point to close on $400 million in equity, So, uh, which we did. But we, I talked to our, our people, and we said, my God, we can't, you know, you, we can't risk it. And so uh, – and my other – Partners in the group were, were businessmen too, and we just uh, we withdrew our our tax exempt uh, request, and then then unincorporated. So yeah, they won. Uh, you know, we, being a founding partner of a large of a company, you don't want to be you don't want to go go crossways with the with the IRS because you know maybe the tiger's in the cage today, but you don't want to you don't want to prod him with a, a stick because he might get out one day. Uh, so we we walked away from yeah. that, and just last week there was a three and a half million dollar settlement uh, from the IRS to Tea Party groups that filed a class action suit. I was not part of that, 
um, I just we talked about. It. There's no way I could have I could have done it still being involved with uh, uh, one of the founding partners of a company. I've walked away from that now. Uh, so, but but you know what? Where where where'd, where'd that three and a half million come from? It came from your listeners. It came from your pocket. It came yeah. from my pocket. They didn't. The the people that that did this travesty weren't punished. They're still there. And and you know it's the three and a half million came from all of us, and it's you know it's they got away with it. Lois Lerner and her crew uh, m- militarized, weaponized the the IRS, just like they're doing with with the Justice Department. Uh, and uh, uh, it's it's really a travesty. And and I, I read uh, Sidney Powell's book, Licensed to Lie. Uh, exposing the corruption of the Department of Justice, which was a, a great read for somebody. Uh, going back, just how corrupt the Department of Justice was, how they use and abuse people that are in their target. Uh, then when they get you in the crosshairs, they'll do anything to take you down and have people lie. And that's why when I see this, what the Department of Justice is doing now with Paul Manafort and some of the Trump people, um, granted, he probably, you know, there's there's things that, you shouldn't. They shouldn't do. But if if these were Democrats, they sure wouldn't be be targeted and gone after like and have your door broken down in the middle of the night. Um, so yeah, we had from the IR, from our from my perspective, I was I personally saw the results of of this IRS targeting, and uh, uh, it's just a shame. And, and we're we're seeing similar things now uh, with my Facebook posts uh, advertising the book and and advertising my. Uh, op-eds and my opinion pieces, the things I'm getting put up on, things like the Daily Caller and the Daily Wire, uh, rejecting my ads as being political when they're in fact scientifically valid and and, and based on science. So, you know, it's, it's it's not the government doing it; it's a private company. But it's still, they're they're they are targeting conservatives and conservative thought. Yeah, it's just amazing because I mentioned earlier I put up a mime. Well, someone actually I retweeted a mime that someone put up. On one half was Colin Kaepernick, and the other half was Pat Tillman. And Pat Tillman was the NFL player that left the NFL to join uh, special mm-hmm. forces and yep. served the country. And was killed uh, by friendly fire accidentally. And you know, I had put up there what's the difference between these two? And I put one was willing to stand up and defend and die for this nation, the other one will kneel and want to see this nation die. Yeah. And within a matter of minutes, Twitter took the mime down. Mm, I mean, really? Minutes. I had posted it, and what? I was putting up stuff for the show, and I put up two more tweets for the show, and I look over it, and I see the mime saying, uh, link, uh, uh, link took down, or whatever they posted. It's just saying that they oh, took no. the link down. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> And I've had it where I put up ads onto Facebook, and Facebook kept on rejecting them, saying they're political. Well, it's a conservative yeah. talk show. Of course it's political. That was the yeah. purpose of it. I had and one rejected, no, I I had one rejected on, on Antarctic, uh, uh, completely science-based. But it was picked up, I think it was on, uh, I believe it was on, there's that phone that's never supposed to ring. And uh, I think it was... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> That uh, uh, I think it was picked up by uh, oh, Ben Shapiro's site, and you know they probably have these algorithms that you know there's certain sites that they they deem to be uh, uh, you know a, a hate hate speech or f- 
fake news or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. About half of my Facebook ads get get rejected as being political. Well, now we see a rise of these other alternative social media networks, uh, such as One Way, MeWe, Gab. Um, I'm trying to think of half the other ones. Uh, there's Hubbook, which is a, a new one that just started just the last uh, two months, and they're trying to look to see if they can take over a large portion of that Facebook mm. market and say, hey, listen, it's supposed to be freedom of speech, not freedom from speech. And uh. there, there's a lot of people out there trying to do that. We had the um, two creators of uh, Hubbook on the show just last week. So maybe that's something that you may want to look at, you know, the alternative yeah. media is out there. Yeah, I've not heard anything about it. I know. Yeah. So I'll, I'll try to remember to send you some links a little bit later on this afternoon or tonight. Um, yeah. But I want to get back to this IRS thing because a couple of my friends were the ones that testified before Congress. Uh, Joe Dugan mm-hmm. with the Myrtle Beach Tea Party, mm-hmm. Diane Belson. Uh, she was up there. Um, she was sitting next to uh, the one from Texas. And Diane was absolutely articulate and very great. Yeah. But she and I had a discussion about this. When we formed our tea party back in 2009, and it was just a group of five of us in someone's living room, and we discussed whether or not we were going to become a 501c3. And Mm -hmm. at that time, uh, it was somewhere about mid-April we did this, there was a news story breaking that this guy out in California, um, uh, Timothy Geithner, was then the Treasury Secretary. Yep. And... Uh, remember Guyton at the tax cheat? Oh, yeah, I used TurboTax. Oh, yeah, I had, I had a red uh, red so, rubber stamp that said tax cheat that I would put on dollar bills whenever I saw his signature. I, it was great fun. Well, the, this guy out in California was the one who manufactured those rubber stamps that you bought. And oh, okay. And they decided to go after him. They decided mm. to go after him. And I said, listen, if they're going to go after a company for, you know, saying tax cheat, um, then they're going to come after us. If that guy is conservative enough that he's going to be making these rubber yeah. stamps tax cheap, and he was telling people to stamp them on the currency over Geithner's name, and yeah. the IRS went after him financially. Uh, but I said, if you really wanted to put this guy out of business, he's defacing currency. That's a federal crime. So why don't you go after him for defacing currency? But no, they didn't do that. They decided yeah. to take the other route and. Uh, I don't know if he won or lost, but I said, if they're going to be doing that, what will they do to us? And sure enough, that's when shortly after Diane Belson said, hey, listen, Ann, we've been getting this stuff in from the IRS. She goes, are you going to be a 501c3? And I says, we've discussed it over the last, now it's like two years later. I said, we've discussed it. And each time we decided, no, the IRS is becoming too nosy, too invasive, and we don't want to scare people away. So we remain to this day unincorporated, a loose group mm-hmm. of friends that meet once a month. And we say, hey, listen, the IRS cannot ask us for a, uh email list because we accept no, do- no donations. Mm-hmm. We do not um, have a bank account. We are not incorporated. So what are you going to do? Are you going to go after every single group of people that sit down and talk politics? What are you going to do that? Yeah. The red hat ladies? So we yeah. are able to function now. Uh, this is going on. Oh, geez, this next April will be 10 years. So we've been able to function, still meet, and still be active. But what did, look what they did to you. Look what they did yeah. to so many other people. Well, I'm always I mean, looking around. I, I've spoken to a lot of uh, Tea Party groups. I, I, 
mainly within four hours of my area because to go a little bit further than that it's you know just it takes me too too much time away from my busy schedule and and uh, but I'm looking for other Tea Party type groups or conservative groups to to speak uh, mainly about the inconvenient facts of climate change. Very well received. I'll be going to St. Louis in two weeks, speaking at Phyllis Schlafly's uh, annual uh, the Eagle Forum conference out there. One of their featured speakers uh, was in Washington D.C. speaking to students a few weeks ago. Uh, so I get around. Uh, but if there are if there's a big enough group down your area, I'd love to come and. Uh, share my fascinating findings that you saw in the book and others. So I'll just throw that yeah, out um, there. So that'd be great. Have Have you ever thought of putting together a video? Uh, ah, uh, I've got my video. Uh, I've got one. Uh, I'm not ready to. Add, there's. A, I have a uh, a YouTube channel. I've got one down, but I'm just in the experimental part of it right now. Uh, just you know, it takes a while to get it all right, uh, but that's on my list. I think they're going to be very effective. They're going to be very. Uh, I really like the look of it, and I think we can get out, get the message out to a lot of people and get get a lot of shares. So, if you're an enterprising soul, you can go to the Inconvenient Facts YouTube channel, uh, and there's one sitting there. But again, I'm not. I'm 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 waiting to really publicize it until I've got uh, five or six or eight of them. Uh, ready to go there. Yeah, because uh, sometimes we take videos at our meetings and we'll we'll play the video. Uh, we did that with the Fair Tax movie, uh, a couple of others. Uh, our friend Paul Sutliff had put together a video presentation that he did on um, civilization jihad uh, at our at our group. So you know, if you had something like that, you can send it. We'll set aside mm-hmm. a meeting. You know, t- about the climate mm-hmm. change ch- climate change hoax. If I can say that three okay. times fast. Okay. But, oh, man. Gregory. Um, Gregory. Yes. Hey, Curtis. Yeah, we. Want, I want to change subject to like hurricanes right now because we're in the hurricane season. Um, mm-hmm. We've had hurricanes, um, major hurricanes like Camille, and and we had Andrew, and we've had Fran and Floyd. But why does Katrina? sticks out the most in, in our psychic, you know, these days. You're asking why, why does the, uh, why it becomes such a why political it, issue? There you well, go. it's, yeah, well, it's, it's by design. This isn't, this, this climate change isn't a hoax. It's happening and it, and, but the hoax is, is what the, the climate alarmists and the people uh, these one worlders, uh, the new world order type people, uh, need to instill fear. And we've talked about this. You've had me on your show before, Annie. And you know, I talked about the first quote in the books from H. L. Mencken, who talks about imaginary hobgoblins of alarm that need to be created out of whole cloth in order to frighten the population, so that the uh, citizens will gladly, if they're if they're scared enough. They'll gladly accept onerous and painful regulations like the Paris Climate Accords or, or carbon taxes uh, to solve this imaginary problem. So they need to portray uh, hurricanes as something that, that, that they aren't. They're horrible. They're devastating, but they're, they're not getting worse. And there's a, a very strong case I make in the book that they're actually decreasing and have been for some time. Uh, there's certainly... Uh, it doesn't appear that there, there's an argument now. Oh, even the alarmists say, well, 
okay, well, they're not increasing because they're not. We can prove that. Uh, but they're getting more intense. Well, I think the last time we talked, we talked about one of the NOAA's chief experts on hurricanes agreed that he thought that global warming and more warming uh, would increase hurricane velocity by 1% to 2%. Okay. Well, I think that last time was on, I said, well, who's going to know the difference if you're in a Category 5 storm between 164 and 165 miles an hour? I mean, that's even below their the, – the, they can only really measure wind speeds in a hurricane uh, within a range of 5 to 10 miles per hour, and then it's gusting. Uh, so uh, they're they're stirring up its hurricanes. It's uh, right now uh, it's forest fires. Uh, my my most recent uh, post that, that got picked up by Daily Caller was uh, summer is the best time for alarmists, and it, it, and that's what it is because August September we've got fires raging, we've got hurricanes striking the United States. You know you get a tornado wiping out an elementary school. Uh, they got to they got these things, and, and then they'll pretend that these things never happened at all before we had man-made warming or man-made climate change. Uh, they think that these are these, and, and they they've done a pretty good job convincing the public that these are events that are tied and directly to to our man-made global warming when they're not. When just the opposite is the, is the case. I, in fact, I was just down, uh, just got off. Of, on nearly two-week vacation in Costa Rica, uh, one book I read down there was called The Little Ice Age. Uh, and, and I was just reminded reading that book just how horrific uh, that period from 1250 to 1850 was, just devastating, terrible, terrible, horrific consequences of, of the cold rather than the warm. And we see that time and time again. The rise and fall of civilizations tied directly to the rise and fall of temperatures. And rising temperatures doesn't mean bad. Historically, over the last 4,000 years, every time it got warm, really good things happen. We grow more food, uh, people are prospering, and then, of course, when it gets cold, bad things happen, really bad things. I hope you I know, answered um, your question. I was <laughs> you, were oh, mentioning, yeah, you, um, <laughs> you were mentioning that period of 1250 to 1850, uh, but there was one heat wave in 1858 that actually turned London into a stinking sewer. Uh, this was on BBC.com by Judith Burns. Mm. Um, uh, she writes that uh, that year the London Standard reported temperatures over 30 degrees Celsius by the middle of June, and the weather stayed hot for several weeks. There was no air conditioning, no refrigeration. It was really hard to keep food fresh. There was no proper sewage system, according to the Museum of London curator Beverly Cook. And she goes on to say, uh, everything you didn't want ended up in the River Thames, from the contents of people's chamber pots to newfangled flush laboratories to dead dogs decomposing food, industrial waste, including animal parts and chemicals from leather tanning factories. Uh, the Thames embankment had not yet been built, and accidental drownings of river suicides were common. And bare bodies were rarely covered from the river. On top of this, you had horse-drawn carriages, and the streets were full of piles of manure. Uh, flies were swarming down, and of course, transmitting diseases that, such as diarrhea and typhoid. And uh, in Little Dorrit, that Charles Dickens wrote, he described the Thames through the heart of town, a deadly sewer ebbed and flowed in a place of fine, fresh water. And worse, 
people in London were actually drinking the water from the Thames. So they think things were bad now. What were they like back then when it really was bad? Yeah, yeah I read that piece. It was uh, enlightening, to say the least. Uh, but actually, the and that's bad when it was warm. But what really was bad, uh, 50, 100, 150, or 200 years prior to when that heat wave took place, was the cold. Now, the cold would drive people. Imagine the cold was causing famine, crop failure, and the like. People were starving, but they also had to huddle together. You just described the same conditions that prevailed for many centuries in London. And just think about it. You've got, now you've got all those people that have to huddle together in a small building or a bigger building, and now now there's disease. Disease then became rampant, transferred easily. Uh, most of the people didn't die from cold or starvation, but rather from uh, the weakness from from starvation and then dying of a, a disease that they would otherwise fight off and then the transmission of that d- disease. Because uh, these people were... Uh, and in the countryside, it was it was bad because these farmers were basically living their subsistence farmers living from one crop to the next, and they could maybe get by one bad year, one crop failure, but whenever they went back to back to back, that's when the horrific famines took place and, and just mass depopulation. People were wiped out. Uh, many villages disappeared completely. Uh, and then, and in and reading about this too, in Chamonix region of France. Uh, a third of the district was lost due to uh, advancing ice out of the out of the out of the mountains, and entire villages wiped off with uh, glaciers advancing quite rapidly, some tens of foot ten, tens of feet a day at, at some points, uh, and just completely wiping out the villages and, and uh, consuming them with ice. So now I'll take the warm. Warm is good. Cold is bad. <laughs> Well, you know, the people also uh, tend to forget about the plague that hit Europe. And, of yeah. course, you're talking about all these people within the same room. And the saying went that you may dine with breakfast with your family in the morning, but dance with the devil at night. And where did we get the nursery rhyme? Ring around the posy, pocket, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies. The ashes, ashes, we all fall down. There in that nursery rhyme was built about the kids taking pockets of posies, thinking it's going to ward off the plague and still saying, you know, now they're burying the bo- burning the bodies to stop the plague, which is what that nursery rhyme was all about. I didn't know um, that. It, it was... Uh, <laughs> you think well, about most it. Of the, Ring around yeah. the rosy, pocket full of posy, ashes, ashes, we all fall down, was about the yeah. plague. And all the, uh, a lot of the witch hunts, and I'm, I'm researching that right now, I thought it was fascinating, were, were actually fueled by climate change. And... Uh, uh, in France, there was a, again, in the Chamonix district there, they'd had such terrible, terrible uh, results of the Little Ice Age and, and ice just ice and snow and avalanches and floods uh, during that time that they, they thought they uh, it was due to their sinful nature and that God was uh, exhibiting retribution on them for their sins. And they would have, uh, have the the priests come and, and walk up to the head of the glacier and perform ceremonies. And then at one point they, they thought they had found a great number of witches and there were actually 45 people executed in that district. And it, and it was due to climate change. And because they, they thought they were witches that were bringing this down on them. Um, we see the same thing in, in the, in the United States. I'm researching that part of it now. Uh, 
fascinating, the the relationship between history and climate and temperature. And and boy, just as a regular basis, it's the cold that's that's really bad. And we're we're being told just the opposite, that that the warm is going to kill us when it will probably benefit us greatly. Yeah, because in your book you had the graphs and everything, you know, showing the different ages. And if you look at the time that Christ walked the world, it was far warmer than it is now. And you know, uh, um, I happen to be yeah. friends with my congressman, but sometimes he drives me nuts uh, because he came up with this uh, legislation, this proposed legislation, and I'm praying that it doesn't go through. That FEMA would then buy up. Uh, properties of people that happen to be living along the coast. So if if you live in a coastline Mm. in an area where you may have storm surges or hurricanes, uh, you made a bad investment. You decided to buy your property on that beach. That was your choice. Uh, But he wants FEMA to buy up these properties that are along the water areas that would have storm surges. Yeah. Think about how many rivers overflow. New Orleans, they didn't have their their um, levees properly maintained. New Orleans flooded out. You look at other areas that flood out because their levees or, or dams or whatever they have are not properly maintained or are so old that are crumbling. Yeah, you you have the, we had this in upstate South Carolina, a major flooding. I think it was like two years ago because the levees were not properly maintained. If people take responsibility for where they live, and yes, when you buy property it is a gamble the same way if you buy a stock it is a gamble you choose what you pay when i bought my house uh we made sure we were not in a floodplain we made sure we had a crawl space so that if god forbid you know we end up now being in a floodplain because you know the, the routes of rivers change that we, it changes over time we have that crawl space to give us that little extra edge so if you buy something and you're not paying attention to where you're living and what the weather's going to be, that's your fault. It's not mine. I don't think government yeah. should be paying for your mistake. Oh, yeah. No, I, I took a, a tour of uh, – it, it was a few years after Katrina. And uh, we took a tour of the uh, – as a geolo- it was a geology tour about what happened in the collapse of the levees and what happened, you know – why did they collapse? What happened here? What happened there? And one of the problems in one of the sections of the levees, they were the federal government had funded increasing the height of the levee by whatever it was, four or five feet, which was fine. But in that same and, and extending the levees, uh, but they didn't fund. I don't think it's called a splash guard, but there's you have to put concrete on the uh, non-river portion at the base. So, so if the rev- levee does overflow, that it doesn't fall down like a waterfall and start eating away at the at the uh, base of the of the levee, uh, and they 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 didn't fund that part of it. So when it overflowed, what we had was the uh, that sections of those sections of the levees collapsed because if you can imagine, there's a waterfall coming over this levee and it's just eating into the ground uh, underneath it, and finally the, the whole thing just erodes and and collapses. Uh, But there were a number of stupid, stupid things that the government did, Um, you know, funding levies for a portion, you know, additional four or five feet, and then they just stopped. Well, the river's going to 
when it goes up, it's going to go up everywhere, not just where you built the levees. So it was just incredible governmental incompetence. But but I I'm, am I repeating myself? Governmental incompetence. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but but you're right. Hey, there's, there's there's no way that we should be funding uh, buying out people that made bad choices. Gregory. Yes, sir. Now we we all expect a big earthquake in the California, you know, West Coast region. Mm-hmm. But what would we be prepared if something like that happened unexpectedly on the East Coast? Because my understanding is we have faults over here, and I don't think we would be as prepared as those people on the West Coast. Well, you're right about being prepared, but neither do you have the risk. Uh, where particularly where you all y'all are. Um, the, the earthquake risk is is incredibly incredibly close to zero, uh, and and they're just geologically it, it ain't going to happen. Now watch, you'll have one tomorrow, but you know after I say that. But uh, <laughs> actually, one of the biggest earthquakes in, in North American history was uh, in in Missouri. It was called the New Madrid uh, earthquake back in I think eighteen twelve or twenty, early eighteen hundreds. And there wasn't anybody living there at the time, uh, but it was felt as far away as New York City. And that New Madrid uh, fault system is still active. Uh, but we, we know through uh, geologic research that uh, while, while there are faults, uh, you need to have uh, stress on that fault to create the earthquake. And we just don't see that uh, here. I mean, I've got right underneath me in Pittsburgh. I'm sure there are uh, numerous faults, but they're healed, and they were active probably uh, tens, hundreds of millions of years ago, uh, and have since been healed. And the, the stress is is not so great, uh, but we've we've been able to identify as geologists some of these things that have potential uh, for for activation, and we do see some of that with the disposal of frac fluid uh, in the deep deep. Uh, water disposal wells in some areas where it's led to uh, relatively minor earthquakes, but earthquakes nonetheless. So you have to be careful with, with the disposal wells uh, that, that you're not mm-hmm. situating them and disposing of water uh, near one of these potentially active faults because it would be the, the lubrication actually that is what does it. Uh, the stress has always been there, but what you're doing is lubricating that fault and allowing it to slip uh, when it was already kind of locked up before. Well, let me ask you about you know, this thing. Are we prepared for a Yellowstone eruption? There ain't no way a to be super, prepared for that. No, there's no way to prepare. Now, how do you prepare for that? Yeah, if, there, if your listeners aren't familiar, Yellowstone caldera uh, erupted once. When it goes again, and, and, and I'm not saying it, well, it probably will at some point, but it, it may not be for thousands of years. Uh, but boy, you're right. That that's that would. I don't know how you prepare. That might be. Um, I don't know. It would be, what would it, would it be, be like? It would be horrific. There's. I mean, it would be. There would be so much. We know what some of the the big volcanoes did when they explode, and this is probably what it, it's really a big volcano waiting waiting to erupt under there. Uh, but we know that some of the big ones throughout time, Chinchon back in the early 1800s and uh, Krakatoa and others affected the weather and climate for, for several years afterwards. Uh, Mount St. Helena. So that, 
Excuse me? Mount St. Helena. Yeah, Mount St. But actually, Mount St. Helens wasn't that big compared to the big ones. It's not. It's not included in that. It seems big because it occurred close to home here in the United States. But uh, some of the really truly huge volcanoes only occur every you know, fifty or sixty or hundred years or more. Uh, so we don't get the really big ones. Although it was impressive. Uh, but it, it didn't. I don't think Mount St. Helens had really had any effect on temp, worldwide temperature, where the big ones uh, can depress temperature by several degrees mm. until the ash mm. and the and the sulfates never get out of the atmosphere. Now, uh, earlier you had mentioned about forest fires. You know these wildfires that we have. Yeah. You know, jumping up all over the place. But growing up, we didn't. Well. On Long Island, New York, we had a major wildfire that took out a lot of the South Shore. Uh, it took a long time for that to grow back. But after we had that major uh, forest fire on Long Island, New York, back in the early 60s, uh, the forest department said, well, we're going to start doing controlled burns. And on Long Island, they started to do the controlled burns, and we no longer had them. But for some reason, the federal government had stopped going after the controlled burns. And we see a rise, an increase of these wildfires, and yet they're blaming climate change yep. on these controlled burns. Now, in nature, naturally, nature has a way of doing their own burns so that the old growth gets destroyed and new growth has room to come through. You know, major, a lot of the pine forests need this in order to generate new pine trees. Uh, there's other... Uh, 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 <laughs> My mind just went blank. Other types of vegetation that also needs this heat to release the seeds to create new growth. We used to be good stewards, but now they said no more doing this. And now the forest see, well, we're having these major wildfires. Maybe it's a good idea yeah. to go back to controlled burns. And yeah, they're yeah, still yeah, blaming we, it on climate change. Yeah, there's. Uh, if you look at the Last year, of course, they had a, a bad, what they considered a bad fire year in California, and they had a CAL FIRE, C-A-L FIRE. Uh, they're in charge of administering all things fire-related in California. The head of that blamed, at least part of it, was on forest management practices. According to him last year, he said that there were four to five times as many, too many trees per acre as what there really should have been in a healthy forest. And just imagine what that would do to the forest and the soil moisture. You've got five times or four times too many trees, and they're all competing for that same soil moisture. So it's going to accentuate and exacerbate an already bad drought because you're just sucking every last bit of of uh, moisture out of the soil, and then you've just got uh, a greater density of fuel for, for uh, looking for an ignition source. and. And according to California, the main ignition source uh, for this is, is humans. But 95% of all the fires, according to CAL FIRE, are human-related. And most of those are electrical in nature from the electric company. Uh, so there's uh, there are lawsuits pending going against the California electric grid, uh, blaming them. Because if you can imagine, you get transformers sparking, you get a uh, the random drunk illegal immigrant running into a, into a pole, uh, you know, things like that. But maybe there shouldn't be drunk illegal immigrants, but that's another topic. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's for another day. But but uh, 
So what we see here, too, and in California in particular, um, the state's subdivided into uh, areas controlled by the U.S. Forest Service, which are mostly uh, high mountainous areas with the, with the wooded areas, and then CAL FIRE administers uh, the remaining part of the lower areas. And the areas controlled by CAL FIRE, we're actually seeing a long-term decline in forest fires in California. Uh, there has been, a, again, a rise in the higher mountainous areas with the steep woodlands. But again, that probably a lot of that's attributable to to uh, mismanagement of the fires, which goes back to the 70s. And actually, it's the environmentalists that proclaimed a, and claimed to care so much about the forests and the wildlife uh, that really opposed any lumbering, thinning of the forests, or any of the controlled burns. And and the the chickens are coming home to roost now with the fires there in California. <laughs> and we, we've also got, throughout the Northwest, we've also got, uh, there was a beetle infestation that killed a lot of trees. So now you've got dead stands of trees that have been dead for five, six years, and of course they're just, again, waiting for that, that random ignition source a bolt of lightning or a cigarette or whatever it might be. Uh, but we see that, too, that forest fires worldwide, if we look at the big picture, uh, have been a long 100-plus year uh, decline. And, and the experts from the Canadian Fire Service and elsewhere tell it's due to climate change, increasing soil moisture due to, uh, due to climate change, rising temperatures and CO2 fertilization effect are combining to increase soil moisture around the world. And that, that, again, too, alleviates drought when we have this condition. So it's, yeah, I, 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 I don't know, I'm a geek, I mean, but I think I find it fascinating. Well, I remember in the mid to late 90s, uh, up on Long Island, New York, I was living in Northwood at the time, we had a bad beetle infestation uh, on the trees. And it was so bad that when we stepped out of the house onto the driveway, the driveway was covered with their feces. It looked like mud, but you're actually, it was their feces. And we had to have our trees sprayed once a year. And if your neighbor didn't spray the tree, then what was the point of you doing it? So we would have to have the entire block get together and get someone over Mm. there to spray the trees. So these alarmists are just absolute wackadoodle. If we had good stewardship of our environment, they would realize that, yes, you do have to do some destruction in order to create new growth and regrowth. You know, this is the way Mother Nature works. Something must die to let something else live. If your listeners are interested in this more about the fires, I've got a a page devoted to forest fires at the website, inconvenientfacts.xyz. So they can go see for themselves that uh, a century-wide decline of, of forest fires in the northern hemisphere or see that the number of fires in the U.S. Uh, is actually – there were three times as many fires in the 20s and 30s as there are now. Almost, almost six times as much acreage was burned in the 20s and 30s. Uh, so this is – it's not only unu- – it's we're unusually low, actually – uh, and, and, and only a mile from my home here, where I'm sitting talking to you, there's a there's a uh, a fire tower, and there are fire towers all over the eastern seaboard because we used to have lots of forest fires. I I've been talking to people. No one I've talked to. You're the first person that can remember of a of a wildfire actually, 
there hasn't been anything in Pennsylvania here or New York for, uh, or, or you know, the area of the East uh, for many, many years. Uh, so, you know, and that, that's just a relic of a pastime when there were lots of forest fires because they had these fire towers well, and they were there for a reason. Yeah. Now, it, it's strange that you mentioned that because we moved to South Carolina in Super Bowl Sunday 2001. Um, and about a year after we moved here, there was a tremendous wildfire that spread from Florida uh, as far down as uh, past Orlando all the way up through Georgia. And we would have to keep our windows and doors closed because of the smoke mm. coming from those wildfires all the way up here in South Carolina. Uh-huh. And it was after that the Georgia uh, Forestry Division said, uh, we're going to start doing controlled burns. Um, Florida had that one whole corridor. We, we were driving back and forth, going to, forth, back and forth to Fort Lauderdale at the time because my sister-in-law was dying. And there were certain times that the roads were completely closed on I-95. You couldn't go through because of the wildfires. And mm. you would go through and they'd warn you, hey, we're closing this down because we're afraid the fire's going to jump over I-95. That's how bad it is. And if anyone mm. knows that area I'm talking about, uh, this is where the road is at, at times six lanes wide. Uh, imagine a forest fire that powerful that it jump over a major highway. Um, so, yeah, we're not being good stewards by, you know, letting these eco-Nazis control the conversation. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Eco-Nazis. I'm going to have to use that one. <laughs> uh, so that's that's a good one. That's that's for sure. And, uh, Sounds original. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So All right, hashtag there's just so much. There's so much uh, as part of this that we can talk about about climate change, going from uh, uh, recent uh, information saying that Antarctica is melting, when in reality, it's everything I can see tells me it's it's expanding ice and it's actually contributing to uh, not rise in sea level, just the opposite. I got a question. Yeah. Um, we used to hear a lot about the ozone layer. I mean, it was all over the place. Huh? Yep. Now you don't hear anything. What, did it shrink or did it widen or what? You what know, a political issue went away. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't know enough about it to be to talk about it, and it's something I really should look into because I don't like to talk about things that I'm, I, I don't have in-depth knowledge on. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it at that. And uh, you may know about as much about the ozone as I do. Um, so, I'm, I mean, it would, but you're right. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, we don't hear a thing about it. And, uh, and I honestly don't, I, I can't answer that for you. I don't know uh, what the situation was or is. I'll, I'll look into it. Okay, you can be my research well, guy. <laughs> well, I, I, I pulled this um, article out. Uh, from the patch.com and it's titled New York Times says global greening is terrible and it reads the New York Times published an article claiming unequivocally that global greening from carbon dioxide emissions would be terrible in the long run. Times reporter Carl Zimmer wrote on July 30th that rising carbon dioxide levels are making the world greener by making plants uh, for efficient and I think it's supposed to be more efficient and able to thrive where they once struggled. But that's nothing to celebrate. He disputes the benefits of global greening, 
touted by global warming denialists, uh, is saying that we found plants growing at a faster rate in the last century uh, than any other point in the last 54,000 years because of CO2. Uh, wait, 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 wait. I'm crying. I'm laughing. Sorry. It's incredible what they will go through and say and jump through. They have to jump through hoops, and they cannot deny that any anything related to increasing CO2 or increasing temperature has any benefit. I've, I'm in the crosshairs now because uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a member of a large geologic group, and I spoke down at a, a large convention, 4,500 people. I was featured breakfast speaker down there, and their, their, their monthly magazine featured an interview with me. And the title of the interview was, uh, Can Climate Change Actually Be Good for Us? And you would have thought that they just, I mean, just just the firestorm that's erupted since then. And a number of people have resigned because they would dare uh, have my science, you know, my kind of science uh, uh, represented there. But it's been, so it's been, and I'm, I'm taking the stuff that I'm, uh, I, I got a lot of, I got a lot of hate and vitriol directed toward me. Uh, but you know what, if they're well, not... I'm probably not doing my job. <laughs> well, I, I pulled up one of your Facebook posts because I, I just because your comment was I'm not sure, but I don't think this guy loves me. Oh, you <laughs> read that remember. one. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Deep simplicity. Uh, he calls you. He said you are a liar, an immoral, unethical criminal, committing crimes against humanity. That's me. Yep, that's me. <laughs> that, that's that's one of the I couldn't. Yeah, that was one I could post. Um, yeah, they're just just from this morning on a on a Facebook page, the guy said he, that he wanted he he thought that eventually my children were going to cut off a part of my body that will go unnamed and throw darts at it. And really, really, oh, it's these people are vile, hateful. Um, but mm-hmm. if you dare say anything positive about our changing climate, or even question anything that they're contending. It's just, uh, uh, I mean, that that post that you quoted there about what being a, uh, whatever it was, it was in response to my, my post on Twitter that it's become clear that no rational scientific argument can be made with most climate alarmists, and that's when he responded. Uh, he responded to to me complaining or just stating that you can't have a rational argument, and he said, "I'm a what a whatever it was you read off," which was so ironic. He just confirmed everything, really. So, uh, yeah, so mm-hmm. it's been it's been a wild ride here, and but especially lately with this with the geologic group that I'm involved with, that uh, uh, they're they're taking a lot of heat, but. Uh, I'm in contact with the president of the organization. They says no. We they said we we strongly. Uh, this is not what science is supposed to be. It's supposed to be debate. We're not going. They're going to open it up, and there very few scientific organizations are willing to do that. So I, I applaud them for that. And uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we got only just a couple of minutes left. Uh, I extended the show just for a few minutes because there was one last thing I wanted to tack on because uh, you sent this uh, to me, oh, good Lord, back in July. Holy cow. Mm. Um, but 
uh, Steve Scalise, the House Minority Whip, had proposed a carbon tax. And this is the same legislation they had back in 2013, 2016. Now, here you got a Republican pro- going no, with wait, wait. Uh, a Democrat. No, wait, wait, wait. Go ahead. You got it just a little bit wrong. Steve, Steve Scalise uh, proposed uh, a resolution that would okay. condemn carbon tax. Okay, okay. so Steve, Steve okay. Scalise uh, is, a good, is a good guy. It was uh, six Republican congressmen, three of them from Florida, uh, had come up with this pro- this carbon tax proposal, and Scalise uh, had a, a resolution condemning it, which is so. So no, that's good. Uh, but yeah, I the, skipped over the word condemning. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> right, right, right. So it was condemning it. But the problem is they've had they had a similar resolution uh, twice before with 100 percent. GOP support behind it, and this time we have, we've actually have six congressmen that are GOP that are that are that not only didn't sign it, uh, we have several now that are uh, in a bipartisan manner trying to get a carbon tax, and and one of the scary things there is they're calling it uh, a conservative free market based carbon tax, and uh, because what they want to do with this, uh, they're using what they what they're what they're calling the free markets and conservative principles. Uh, to slap uh, carbon dioxide tax onto uh, any forms of energy that that uh, create carbon dioxide, oil, coal, natural gas, um, and of course the solar and the and the wind wind people are, you know, they just love it. Uh, there's been a real concerted effort now to get this carbon tax passed. Uh, I don't, you know, as long as we've got Donald Trump in the White House and we've got Republican control, that, that that's just not going to happen. It better not. It would be really bad for America, for our economy, for the citizens. Uh, higher energy for energy costs for everybody is bad for everybody, except for the wind, wind and solar panel manufacturers. Yeah, <laughs> don't get me started on those. <laughs> um, but it, ironically, with them pushing for a carbon tax, Canada, on the converse, is reducing their carbon tax. Here you've got liberal Justin Trudeau's government, but they said, well, this carbon tax is going to go into effect next year. Let's look at reducing it because maybe it may not be that good of a thing. So here we yeah. go, doing the exact opposite of what well, we're seeing be that done. around. We're seeing, but, it, seeing it in Germany, Angela, Angela Merkel, and, and in Great Britain. Australia is having huge problems uh, with the, going to wind and solar. They're having blackouts, brownouts. Uh, just really, really bad problems. They're, they're moving away from what works. What works is coal. Uh, and and if, if carbon dioxide uh, is what I say it is, and I think we can document it, and there's a lot of science, that, that it's not the devil, the demon molecule that they contend it is, uh, we, can, we can produce coal-fired energy cleanly. There are plenty of scrubbers to take the bad stuff out. The bad stuff's not carbon dioxide. The bad stuff are the, are is the sulfate, the sulfates and particulates and the, and the like. Uh, those are true pollutants. Car- carbon dioxide yeah. is not. No, and, and, and with the solar panels, actually, you have these solar farm fields now. They're coming up with that is increasing the temperature of the atmosphere because of the reflection of the sun off those panels. So they're worrying about global warming. And yet they're causing global warming with these solar farms. The wind farms, uh, the people are complaining about uh, headaches and illness because of the vibrations these wind farms 
uh, create. And the migrating birds that are being killed by these wind farms. But, oh, we, we, where's peanut we had, when these birds are, especially American eagles, flying into these wind wind farms? Yeah, we had a uh, – the Pennsylvania Game Commission uh, controls vast uh, parts of the state of Pennsylvania here, the uh, Pennsylvania game lands. And uh, they have decided and actually banned any wind wind turbines on their properties, and they control some of the – a lot of the high mountain ridges that are in great demand by wind turbines, uh, and they said because they, it can't, we, in their opinion, it can't be done safely. That it, it causes a provides a danger uh, to the hunters. Their primary uh, responsibility is for wildlife and for to provide uh, hunting for for the hunters. And they said we just there's no way that it's safe enough, uh, and nor is it safe for the, either the wildlife. Like you say, bats and birds being killed, but also imagine hunters. There would have to be a huge barrier around each one to keep hunters away, and then you've got live high voltage electricity running all through the forest, right? And I mean, it's you can do, try and do it safely, but there's always danger there. Uh, so yeah, the, the Pennsylvania uh, Land uh, Wildlife Commission banned any wind turbines here. This was. And in fact, if you look on my blog, I've got a, a commentary on that in more detail about that. Well, Gregory Wrightstone, it has been a pleasure having you. I'm going to have you back on soon because there's so much more to talk about. Um, your book is Inconvenient Facts. People can get it at inconvenientfacts.xyz. And uh, just last thought, uh, they're complaining about global warming, but we've had an early snow, the earliest snow ever recorded in Colorado. Because <laughs> The previous one was, I believe, September 3rd, 1961. This was now even before that. So, (laughs) Gregory, thank you for joining with us today. Thank you. (laughs) All right. You have a blessed day, Gregory. Oh, man. It's always fun to have Gregory on. We will be back here on Friday. And as Curtis posted up in the chat, we've got Scott Houston uh, joining us, Echo and Ramadi. Uh, He will be here in South Carolina at Patriots Point at a uh, Ramadi uh, meeting. About that, uh, Dr. Ken Canfield will also be with us on Friday. And we're pretty booked up through the middle of the month, um, so we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, Twee Lowe will be joining yeah, us know. also next week. Uh, so, And also towards the end of the month, we're going to have a 12-year-old kid on. His name is Miller Browning, and he started a new project do, called Do Work That Matters. And this kid is excited to be on the show. So we'll be back here on Friday, same bat time, same bat station. Don't let the crazies out there get you. Uh, try not to watch too much of the confirmation hearings of Kavanaugh because you'll lose your cookies. The Until then, I want to thank, <laughs> thank everyone that joined us. Until then, I say good night and God bless. And I leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Cold Up Yonder. Good night, Curtis.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.